Hey guys, welcome back. Mac Rollins, Zen Cop here. Thank you for being here and thank you for listening. No fancy uh, intro music this time. My computer uh, is not being cooperative today. So I am using a new microphone. So hopefully the audio is a little bit better. If it is, let me know. I really dig this new setup. So this will be the second and last side of our episode for gun violence in America. If you are listening on YouTube, please don't forget to like and subscribe. And if you are a Apple or Spotify listener, please don't forget to drop a rating below at the end of the episode. All of that stuff will hopefully help me reach a larger audience in the future. Now, I always like to start these episodes with an opening that talks about communication and how important that is when it comes to topics just like this. This particular topic can carry a lot of personal opinion and for certain portions of the audience, it can actually carry a large amount of emotion, which makes it a, a very difficult topic to discuss openly and also directly. And on that note, there is no easy way to talk about violence and evil, and more importantly, when said violence and evil takes action and in the most sinister form. Uh, in the previous episode, I touched on my background and experience when it comes to firearms, the history of firearms altogether, and also a lot of uh, familiarity with statistical data that I've been studying for many, many years. All of that expertise combined with my actual work experience throughout my career, both as a cop and working in the firearms industry. I talked about all that stuff to essentially vet myself and to ensure that the listener despite the fact that I, I am very pro-gun uh, and very well-versed in the topic at hand, that doesn't make me someone who would be against hearing any argument of, of any kind and from anyone who is willing to create dialogue. I truly believe that the majority of what the people who are, uh, you know, especially the anti or in the anti-gun crowd or even indifferent on the topic, uh, they truly have no idea what they're talking about. I'm not saying that with the intent to belittle them or to be mean, it's just a reality. I would say almost exclusively, uh, that the majority of people who are the you know so-called activists and pillars of the modern-day gun control movement, they literally have no background, no education, and no real standing to make the arguments they present to the public. And despite my background, I truly believe that if we simply provided the public with true and accurate information, coupled with statistical data, and more importantly, an actual plan to defeat gun violence in America, I think we would be able to find a, a common ground and more importantly, an overall understanding that would allow the average person to say, hey, this actually makes sense. Maybe we should give that a try. Uh, in the previous episode, we talked a lot about statistics and we talked a lot about how the statistics are never truly presented to the public but rather presented in a skewed fashion that makes the average person believe that we have an active shooter crisis in America and the problem is the AR-15. If you're a gun guy or gal, you probably noticed the artwork for the show, the Scar Heavy with the L-Can mounted on it. Very heavy setup. The L-Can only adds about 38 pounds to the gun, but I intentionally chose to not use the AR-15 style rifle. Poor little guy. Uh, he needs a break from all this fanfare and attention. Now, speaking on the AR-15 and going back to the concept of the active shooter AR-15 combo, that is probably one of the most inaccurate pieces of information floating around to date. Uh, one of the other larger pieces of information that tends to get ignored or skewed is the number one gun-related cause of fire. I'm sorry, excuse me. Number one gun-related cause of death in America, and a lot of people will answer that with the response of active shooter. Um, they couldn't be more wrong. Well, over half, 60% actually, of gun-related deaths in the U.S. consists of firearm-related suicides. Now, I'm going to repeat that because it's so powerful. Well over half of the gun-related deaths in America are from self-inflicted gunshot wounds, the far majority of them committed with handguns. The other skewed statistic that we discussed in the previous episode was that almost exclusively homicides within the U.S. are committed with a handgun and not a rifle. A very small fraction of gun homicides in America are committed with a rifle. 
And it's actually quite rare when you look at the numbers side by side in comparison to handguns. The fraction gets even smaller for the specific use of the AR-15, which, end, which ends up count, uh, counting for in the ballpark of less than 1% of firearm-related homicides within the U.S. The other piece of information that was important to note was the far majority of homicides that were deemed active shooter incidents were actually inner city gang related violence no ar-15s no manifestos no schools no media coverage just teenagers trying to kill themselves in the streets now the other portion of what we talked about in the previous episode involved the media and specifically how you will never see those stories on the evening news you will however see any white male adult with an ar-15 spanning coverage for weeks on end it's truly sad that we have to bring race into the picture, but I can count dozens of active shooter scenarios that involve a variety of races to include a variety of sexes, where once the media figured out who the suspect was, or more specifically their ethnicity or sexual identity, the story was buried and very quickly. That is probably one of the largest issues we have on the table to date. And that is the simple fact that we have allowed violence to become politicized. We have allowed violence to become a political speaking point. We are quite literally putting a value on life based on what the incident can do to further a political agenda, especially the anti-gun agenda. Now, this brings up another issue that I see constantly, and that is the specific or otherwise selective attention gun violence gets from the majority of Americans. Everyone wants to have an opinion post-incident, but nobody is willing to put in the work after the fact. You will see thousands of people making their voices heard online, on the news, and everywhere else an outlet is provided. But once the dust settles and the incident is behind us, you won't see their faces or hear their voices anymore. And that's part of uh, a much bigger problem we face in America. Everyone is willing to talk about it, but nobody is willing to actually do anything about it. Now, I want to be very clear, and I said this in the previous episode, aside from you know, a psychotic murderer, I can't think of anyone who is actually pro-gun violence, particularly within the firearms community. I can't think of a single solitary scenario where someone within that group would not condone the actions of violence on any person, regardless of method of injury. All of that being said, I want to provide some examples for the listener, especially those unfamiliar with obtaining a firearm and how that process actually works. The majority of people who are on the other side of the fence really hate this comparison, but to date, it's the most accurate option I can think of, and that is the comparison to automobiles. I understand that cars were not made to kill people, but just like anything else, cars can be abused and used for things they were not intended for. The purchasing process, as well as the licensing and documentation is very, very similar to purchasing a gun. And just a quick fun fact, owning a vehicle within the U.S. is not part of the Constitution. The Second Amendment is. I feel like that's a pretty important thing to point out as we move forward. Now, getting back to the comparison in regard to vehicles, the legal process and obtaining one or the other are very similar. As we will soon discuss, there are many commonalities. So regardless of how you feel of the, the literal comparison, my only request is to hear my argument and the information that I present and see where it takes you. Now, I live in California, and for purposes of this podcast, I couldn't think of a better place to show the absolute failure and confusion that gun laws afford the general public as a resident of California. I live in a state that has some of the most, if not the most overall nationwide gun laws and regulations in existence, right? None of which have made us any safer or impacted criminal activity within the, within the state of California. So let's go back to the concept of cars versus guns. 
in California specifically, in order to buy a gun, it's quite the process, and it's definitely not as uh, as easy as the anti-gun crowd makes it out to be. First and foremost, you need a California ID or driver's license. You must be 21 years or older, uh, and that's a new law, to buy any gun of any kind. That changed recently, bumping the age from 18 to 21 for rifles. In the years prior, you had to be 21 to buy a handgun or any rifle that featured a pistol grip. Once you decide on the gun that you want to purchase, you produce your ID, and uh, you are far from being complete in this process. Some dealers are very different, but the majority of them will ask for a secondary proof of residency, especially handguns, such as a vehicle registration with a matching address to your ID. The address cannot be different and there are no PO boxes allowed. There are other alternatives, but that's the most common method used. You then have to pass a firearm safety test and that's a uh, with a score of 75% or higher. And you also have to pay for that test. You will then fill out your uh, 4473 form. That's otherwise known as the dealer record of sale. You'll sometimes hear the word DROS and answer a variety of questions with some of them being automatic disqualifications. Now, after you provide all of that information to the dealer, your information is inputted into the background check system through DOJ, along with the gun serial number, very similar to cars uh, with a VIN number, and you begin your 10-day waiting period. After your 10-day waiting period expires and you pass your background check, you can finally pick up your gun. The dealer must provide you with a safe handling demonstration, and unless you have a gun safe at home or a uh, alternative, you must provide or purchase a gun lock. Most guns come with one, but it just sort of depends on the company. And then after that, you are finally a gun owner in the state of California. This process applies to uh, retail firearm sales, private party firearm sales, and also gun shows. Um, there is no such thing as a gun show loophole in the state of California, and the background check system is one of the most rigorous in the entire country overall. So some would make the argument, you know, hey, that sounds pretty good to me, and I think it's perfectly acceptable. As a resident in California and also being a cop, it's not necessarily the, the legal process that bothers me. And on that note, the 10-day waiting period is absolutely ludicrous. There has been... Uh, zero information or evidence available to to show that the 10-day waiting period has actually stopped acts of violence. If anything, I feel like it can accelerate those acts of violence because if someone really wants to kill someone, they will find a way to do it. Um, but it's all the state laws that, that really put the nail in the coffin for me. And I would prefer not to go down the rabbit hole of California gun laws because it's a very deep topic of conversation. And it is uh, ultimately just a way to make extra money um, from gun owners. But for the listeners who don't know, there is a very, very large variety of absolutely ridiculous gun laws that exist in California that have done nothing to do, uh, have done nothing to protect the general public. And I know you guys are going to be absolutely shocked at what I'm about to say, but it's crazy. Criminals don't obey any of those laws. Ultimately, this is all 100% political and by design. All of these laws are designed to kill the gun community from within and essentially death by a thousand slices. If they can't outlaw the gun, then they will certainly find ways to outlaw just about everything else that makes the gun functional, excuse me, functional, functional and attainable. Now, the Democratic leadership of this state will do anything and everything to ultimately get rid of guns within the state of California. That will never happen, but if they had it their way, I assure you they would. If it does pique your interest, um, you can on your own time check out all of the, the laws we deal with, magazine capacity restrictions, certain features on certain rifles that simply can't exist because I don't know why. Truly, there is no logical explanation or reason for any of the laws and restrictions when it comes to firearms, specifically uh, specifically rifles within the state of California. Now, going back to the comparison, let's look at cars 
and how similar the purchasing process is to a gun. There are certain requirements, just like a driver's license. There is a registration process to include a vehicle identification number, otherwise known as a VIN, registration fees, and a government-regulated system that keeps track of all of this information. The DMV would be the vehicle version of the DOJ. If you were to sell a car, there is a process that involves paperwork and essentially a transfer of title. In most states, that process is almost identical when selling a firearm. But just like anything else, there are people who don't follow the rules and people who will always obtain things illegally. An example that I give often is, let's say, uh, for argument after a long and drawn out process, cars are deemed illegal in the U.S. The DMV uses its retained information and uh, has all the information from the car buyers and essentially takes or the owner turns in all of the cars they own. This operation would obviously take a long, 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 long time. But for sake of argument, let's say a month goes by and miraculously, boom, the DMV has all the vehicles in their possession and they've all been recovered successfully from the law abiding vehicle owners of the nation. But one day as you're riding your bike to work or walking, you see cars on the roadway. This is because no matter what the government does, there will always be an illegal way and an illegal availability for cars to be obtained. This is the exact same argument that can be made for guns. The important part is the majority of homicides committed within the U.S. are done so with firearms that were, ob that were obtained illegally and in the possession of those not allowed to legally possess them. Essentially, law-abiding citizens and legal gun owners are not the crux of the issue. Crime and criminals are. So... Going back to the question of how do we fix this? Well, that's an easy answer. Crime and criminals being held accountable for their actions, specifically enhancements for firearms and firearm, firearm related offenses and parole and probation violations for firearms being as strict as possible. As it stands right now, there isn't much of a recourse uh, for punishment or, uh, or a punishment process for criminals who reoffend, specifically with firearms and specifically in larger cities like L.A., San Francisco, and even Oakland, where past and present district attorneys are essentially George Soros funded. George Gascon and Chase Boudin of San Francisco proved, uh, you know, just how useless they were preventing crime and criminals from, from taking over their cities. We also saw the same behavior on the East Coast with uh, Kim Knox, I'm sorry, Kim Fox of Chicago, Kim Gardner of St. Louis, Rachel Rollins of Boston, and also uh, Marilyn Mosby of Baltimore. California in particular has become so lackadaisical on that issue that it's almost at the point of being completely out of control. And in the interim, Governor Newsom continues to introduce a variety of gun legislation that does absolutely nothing to curb any of that violence, but more so to restrict the average law-abiding citizen of California. For example, a couple of years ago, Governor Newsom approved the background check process for ammunition in California. This essentially means that when you buy ammunition of any kind, you will have to undergo the same background check that you would for a firearm. This also costs money. Nothing is free, especially in California. Now, after the first year of the ammunition background check process was officially put into place, some of the pro-gun groups uh, with some attorneys, they got together and did a case study and specifically looked at the numbers to see if any prohibited persons actually bought ammunition illegally. I know it's going to shock you, but the answer is zero, none. No prohibited persons attempted to buy ammunition from ammunition dealers within the state of California for the entire calendar year. Why? Bad guys don't go to gun stores to buy anything. For sake of argument, there actually were a lot of rejections during the background check process for people buying ammunition. However, the rejections were for people who had moved recently and their addresses were different. So basically that law did nothing and protected no one and actually made things a lot more dangerous for people who actually needed to obtain ammunition and the state profited immensely. That's just one example of the ridiculous laws that we as Californians, Californians deal with on a daily basis now. Another comparison that I like to present is that of the 
problems or legal issues that come with operating a motor vehicle. And I think that we can all agree that the largest problem we face as a nation, both past and present, is drunk driving. Cars were not created with the intent to provide a vessel for a drunk individual to drive recklessly and kill people. Absolutely not. We can all agree on that. Cars were invented for transportation and to get people from A to B safely and quickly. Now, as time went on, people started to abuse that. Um, we started to see a, uh, a uptick in the early 1900s and the legal system essentially created a, a, a law that was the first form of, uh, the DUI laws. Now driving under the influence back then was very different, but in 1935, the comprehensive motor vehicle act was created and added verbiage in regard to all the DUI law, DUI laws, specifically involving great bodily injury. If there was a collision with another party, not much really changed. Uh, until the late 1970s when there was an uptick in DUI-related deaths. And in the early 1980s, we saw the creation of Mothers Against Drunk Driving, otherwise known as MAD. And the country finally recognized that we had an epidemic that was killing a lot of people. Now, since 1982, there has been a 37% decrease in drunk driving-related fatalities. The reasoning behind the reduction in death was because people started to address the actual issue and utilize the proper channels to do so. The legal system followed in suit and started to impose a, a variety of different sentences. And uh, ultimately, you could eventually face prison time uh, with multiple offenses. Now, this also included the um, great bodily injury or death to the other party, the overall BAC at the time of the arrest. But those could also dictate a very severe sentence overall. Even with first offenses, the individual would usually be put on some type of probation to include the use of an interlock device for their vehicle. Their driving would be very limited for a while um, with certain things like, you know, only allowed to go to and from work. On top of all that, they would pay a very, very large fine and also have to pay for their DUI school. To fight the DUI problem, we had grants uh, nationwide that allowed for saturation patrols for all types of uh, uh, variants of law enforcement and law enforcement entities. Nationally, we have spent hundreds of millions of dollars, if not more, trying to combat this issue. And with all of those efforts combined, we have seen a drastic decline in drunk driving related arrests, but more specifically drunk driving related deaths. The legal system has made it so well known to the public that if they cross that line, they will be held accountable to the letter of the law. And the majority of people knowing that information will forego anything that even brings them close to the possibility of being arrested for that offense. My question out there is, why haven't we done the exact same thing for gun-related deaths? And this may not resonate with the audience and uh, not necessarily everyone, but in all of the efforts for reducing the number of deaths and injuries overall for the DUI-related incidents, and all the efforts for trying to stop this behavior and even introduce major criminal punishment for the individual in question. At no point does anyone ever identify the vehicle as the issue, but rather the individual who is driving it. Why do we blame the gun for everything? I understand that the comparisons aren't going to be pound for pound. I totally get that. But my question still stands. Why haven't we given the effort to gun violence that we have given to drunk driving? I understand that there have been efforts in the past and ongoing efforts today from groups like Every Town and the rest of them that have put forward hundreds of thousands of hours into this issue. But the reason why they're unsuccessful is because they are attacking the wrong source. Ask yourself this question. If an individual leaves a bar and they are drunk, let's just say twice the legal limit, and they get into their Ford F-150, they start driving home. And at 75 miles per hour, they run a red light and collide with another vehicle. The driver of the other vehicle dies upon impact. Should that victim's family sue Ford Motor Company or even be held civilly liable for any part of that accident? If your answer is no, then you should also be on the same page for the concept of the victim's family suing the gun manufacturer for an active shooter, which was applauded by all of the anti-gun crowds not that long ago. 
if we truly want to attack the issue, if we truly want to be successful, if we sat down and said, hey, how do we stop gun violence in America? More specifically, how do we stop the biggest portion of that? The first part of that conversation will be about suicide. If we stopped suicide in America via firearm today, we would cut gun violence in half, uh, well over in half, 60%. I really can't stress how powerful that statement is. And more importantly, maybe the, the overwhelmingly glaring fact that we actually have a mental health crisis in America as a result of those uh, numbers, not a gun crisis. If you want to make the argument, well, if there were no guns, there would be no gun suicides. I assure you, the gun is used primarily because jumping off of a building or other means of suicide is, is scary, and it also endangers other people. Um, after talking to a lot of people who did not kill themselves, but were absolutely going to, I can assure you that the reason why they would choose a gun is because it could be something they could do in the privacy of their own home. It was quick and painless, and it limited the exposure to their family and the public. I've talked to a lot of people who ended up not killing themselves, and that answer was almost the same across the board every time. It's not the issue of the gun. It's an issue of mental health, and that mental health spills over into some of the most violent incidents we have seen as a country. If you look back on every active shooter scenario for the last 60 years, the one thing in common next to the use of a firearm was the suspect's mental health rapidly deteriorating long before the incident ever occurred. And even further, they were on some form of medication, specifically an antidepressant some point. The frustrating part is that I can tell you how many active shooters we've had over the past few years. I can tell you about the ones that were stopped before they happened, but I can't tell you about the ones that were stopped long before they became a thought for the shooter and why that shooting didn't happen was because someone decided to do something and ultimately change the course of history. Unfortunately, we can't stat that information, but for anyone who has lived it or seen it with their own eyes, we know it's out there. For the remaining 40% of the gun deaths, almost all of them involve inner city violence, specifically inner city gang violence with individuals who are prohibited from owning guns in the first place. The cure to that issue, bring back laws that hold bad guys accountable and let the cops put these guys in jail. There should be such a process comparable to that of a DUI that should make bad guys so scared to carry a gun, let alone use one, that they ultimately decide to find a different way to kill. Oddly enough, one of the most common weapons used in homicides outside of guns is a hammer or a club, but I don't see anybody outside Home Depot waving cardboard signs trying to stop that issue. Now, if we want to be successful, and if we truly want to end gun violence in America, we need to start doing the opposite of what we are doing now. If more people in the anti-gun community understood how violence within the U.S. actually works, and they saw the numbers from the FBI that literally says inner city minority communities, specifically males between the ages of 16 to 25 years old, using handguns are responsible for almost all mass shootings within the U.S., maybe they would reconsider their method of attack. Sounds to me like we have a misled youth epidemic that is immersed in gang violence and much more than anything else on the table. I can't think of any gun owner anywhere that would not be willing to sit down with someone on the other side of the table and provide insight and education to an issue that ultimately would be a shared passion for both parties. Like I've said so many times before, everything starts with communication. If we have dialogue, we will have success. Unfortunately, Starting that conversation with the other side proves to be quite difficult. But if everyone makes an extra effort to simply respect the other party's viewpoints, regardless of how ridiculous they may seem to each other, we will see success. Until then, a lot of people are going to die, mostly young men. It's up to us as the community, as society, to work together to end this problem without that motivation and drive. We will never, ever see change. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to like and subscribe. And if you are an Apple or Spotify listener, please drop a rating below. 
I'm so excited because last week I was the guest of a podcast that is totally worth listening to, and that is the Disruptors podcast with Ski and BC Sanders. You can check them out on Spotify and other podcast platforms, as well as Instagram, where you can find them at the underscore disruptors underscore podcast. I'm really looking forward to that episode dropping. It was a lot of fun. I'll post the link once it's available. Uh, thanks again, guys, for for listening and keeping an open mind. If you are someone from the other side of the fence and in terms of guns, I hope my words were helpful and hopefully provided some insight on a topic that is not talked about enough. I'll see you guys back here next week. Have a safe week, and we'll see you back here Sunday. Thank you for listening.